Welcome to the Republican Professor this morning. I am so excited to have today's guest, Dr. Carrie Chavez. Thanks for being here, Carrie. Very excited. Thank you for having me. Carrie is joining us from Texas, right? Lubbock, Texas. Texas Lubbock. Tech University. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm in California, boring old California. Don't you come to Texas fairly often? Yeah. Yeah. And I've never uh, once seen you here. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a small state. You'd think we'd run into each other at some point. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, I'm not allowed to say my wife's name on here, but, but uh, I, uh, when we're there, I don't know how far it is from Dallas, but oh. we could maybe pop down. How long, how far is Dallas? Is roughly five and a half, six hour drive. Oh, okay. A quick flight. Although my folks now live there, so more reason to let me know when you're in town. In Dallas? Mm-hmm. North of Fort Worth. Really? Oh, okay, yeah. cool. I'd love to see your dad again. Well, as you can see, Carrie and I know know each other. We've known each other for, um, gosh, a decade and a half or something like that, a long time. Something it, like that. It's, it's going on that. Yeah. And uh, so we're, we're both Biola people, uh, Biola connection there. Uh, you did your undergraduate degree in... Um, well, I know you were in the Tory. You were one of the Tory people. So I was. <laughs> what, what degree is that? Is that that's not a degree, though? That's no Tory is an alternative to the general education track. Gotcha. But my degree was in intercultural studies and political science. Aha. Uh -huh. Yep. OK. So. You got a degree in uh, intercultural studies. Tory is an honors program for those of you who are really annoyed by our inside talk here. Tory, uh, you want to tell people about Tory? Sure. It is, a, like I said, an alternative to general education. It is a, essentially a great books program. Oh, I was going to say, because when you said alternative, I, I, I pictured fixing motorcycles and like, you know, gun repair, that's, you know, refrigeration well, technology. Yeah, okay, that's so, what it is. Great books. No. Okay, that's... It's a great books program that's oriented around the Socratic form of the dialectic rather than um, lecture formats. And the idea there is lecture teaches skill or like techne and the, the dialectic teaches wisdom. So it really teaches people how to learn rather than just teaches them information. And I think it was a very formative program for me. The the knowledge and wisdom I was able to take away from that. And also the study habits, the depth and breadth you're able to cover is pretty phenomenal. So when you say great books, give people a chance to like wrap their mind around that. How many books are we talking about? What kind of books are these? Cal Calvin and Hobbes? Um, a couple of volumes, yeah, of Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> Not the cartoon, people. Yeah. Um, I actually had a, I had curated a list for someone once upon a time. So I had a real tabulation, but now I of course can't remember the, the number, but I, when I went through, I was the first class to do a topical approach rather than a chronological approach through history, which really? I, I preferred. Yeah. I preferred the approach that my cohort took. And so um, it really depended. The, the genre is broad. 
our first semester we did on origins. So we did the epics, you know, from uh, the, of course, the Pentateuch. We did the Iliad and Odyssey. We did Ovid's Metamorphosis, Milton's oh, Paradise okay. Lost and Found, nice. um, Dante's, you know, trilogy. So I remember that really distinctly. We did um, on, on science. We did on, of course, theology on God and Christ and um, on the city and man. So um, on desire was one of our, our topics. So each semester, we usually had a smattering of, um, I would say, like 13 to 14 books. And then, of course, scripture. Um, sometimes we would incorporate poetry, music, um, memorization. It was, it was just a really rich and robust program. For anyone who's considering Viola, here's a plug to consider Tori. Okay, Tori, we get 10% <laughs> of all of the we, yeah. ridiculous tuition. Actually, just kidding. Pay your adjuncts more, for God's sake. Yes, true that. Jeez. Spring for an office instead of that bullpen. It's like Mary Tyler Moore. Jeez. Okay, well, anyway, I love Mary <laughs> Tyler Moore, by the way. But um, so do the kids actually read those books? Do they? They do. They do? They do. Okay. They do, because, the, and that's the other, I think allure of the program you're in very small groups uh small classes sometimes i think mine was only 12 and it was a large one so i don't know what the the size and structure of them is now but i think i had 10 to 12 people at a given time in my what we called house my group and it's open discussion again being oriented around the dialectic you have a, a facilitator, a faculty facilitator, who asks open-ended questions that require you to draw deeply upon the text you're discussing and to synthesize aspects of it, including with other texts. And so it's, it's largely students, it's faculty-led, but student-facilitated, you know, student-dense. So if you haven't read, you look like a fool in front of your peers. Students, and since okay. it's so small, you, you really can't not carry your weight right so you have your dry days of course but yeah um and yeah. then once you you go through your entire four-year education with the same group so once you develop that rapport wow. and you begin to have those accountability relationships and and you trust your your tory mates um you read every single week and you mm. read well and i think that's okay. one of the things you exit with is the capacity to read quickly and well which mm -hmm. helps anyone going into grad school, which involves yeah. a lot of reading. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. yeah. Actually, when I first started um, in my PhD program here, uh, a year into it, because graduate studies are largely seminar style, and so they're mm -hmm. similar to that layout. Um, my first right. year was kind of brutal because mm -hmm. none of my cohort members in my program here were very experienced in that format. And so I dominated strongly <laughs> in that first year. I mean, I'm already a dominant personality and I was already yeah. very enthusiastic about the content. But then also with that background, um, I had times when the professors would open a, a new question and say, but Carrie is not allowed to answer this. 
and <laughs> it would be silent. So I actually started um, at the beginning of, of each new incoming class. They have an orientation week and I would come and spend an hour with the new students and I would talk to them about the form of the dialectic and about generating that kind of group cohesion that you need to survive graduate studies and leaning on each other, but also challenging each other and not being afraid to say something stupid and divorcing your ideas, which are going to mature over time from right. your core identity. Like in Tori, everybody calls each other by their surname. And so back then, you know, if you asked me a question or if you disagreed with me, you would say, I didn't get that from the reading, Miss Morris. I appreciate your perspective, but because so, I was that was my maiden name then. But um, but it, didn't, it they didn't teaches. call you just Morris because <laughs> that would have been a little confusing. Is that your first name? <laughs> it's not called call um, me Mo. No, you don't understand. Call me Mo. <laughs> Doctor. Anyway, call me was, Mo. <laughs> what do you want me no. to call you now? Hmm? What do you want me, me to call you now? Yeah. Do you oh. have a <laughs> Oh, you're asking me? What do you I'm call me? You. Do you have a nickname like that? Butthead. I don't know. Uh, oh, uh people call me all sorts of stuff. Uh people were calling me doctor like long before I got my doctorate. I yeah. I used to correct them. I think I corrected them like the first three times and then I was just like just okay. Okay. Whatever. And I then I yeah. assume, and then I just said, you know what, call me master instead. I because oh, I, like I have that. a master's degree. And go. my first name's Luke. So, you know, like Dr. <laughs> Phil. And yeah. they were like, this is a generation that heard of Star Wars, like the original. And this is right. before the crappy ones came out. Right. But anyway. Agreed. Yeah. Well, I so also you... have a problem with people calling me Mr. all the time in emails. Oh, geez. Mr. Really? Chavez. Yeah, because my my first name in the United States is actually the male spelling. In many other places, it's the oh, female spelling, but here it's it's largely male. So well, I used to do a joke with your your name because <laughs> it's Carrie C yeah. uh, K E R R Y, and I used to call you John. Like, well, that's when back when people knew who John Carrie was. But uh, when was that? I, I used to. Say, no, I, I didn't call. Sorry, I didn't call you John. I screwed that one up. I didn't call you John. I I said any relation to John. That's the joke. Right. Is it doesn't right. make any sense. I had a carry for president sticker for a short time, not because I promoted John Kerry for president. That's funny. But just because, yeah. That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, so your training at Tory definitely prepared you well for the PhD program. That you, you got it okay yeah undeniably so tell us about your hmm is there anything else i get we can circle back to to uh i can't say circle back anymore without laughing say, okay uh, okay densaki sounds I good <laughs> just that she just ruined that we keep bringing up all these democrats what is going on here well tell us about your grad school training you have uh some extensive experience uh, in uh, a topic that we haven't covered here very much on TRP podcast, and that is uh, international and security concerns. So tell us about your, your background in that. 
Okay. Your academic background. Yeah. So my first master's degree is actually in international security studies from the University of St. Andrews. And that was, that was interesting. Interesting, good and interesting, bad. I thought it was, I thought it was street Andrews. (laughs) Okay. Because I yeah. had a best friend that grew up on Andrews, Elm Street right. and right. same spelling. Okay, so right. you're saying it's Saint. <laughs> All right. Okay. Are you a golfer? <laughs> no. No? Well, okay. I have, but I suck. So okay. that's Most another... people know it as the birthplace of golf, and it's yeah. widely familiar. But okay. um, yeah, that program, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with critical theories, not critical race theory confined to the American context. But just in international politics or international relations in general, there are the orthodox theories, realism, liberalism being the two um, considered big theories. And then there are some alternative theories that have cropped up at the end of mainly the Cold War, because those two orthodox theories very poorly explained the fall of the Soviet Union, um, the rise of the human rights regime, the breakout of small wars. And so other theories sort of arose to try to better explain those phenomena and fill those gaps. And so um, constructivism is one of them. And then there's a range of critical theories, which really are, are not positively asserted theories, as the name suggests, they're, they're mostly critiques of, um, of positivism, like the, the idea that the scientific method can even apply to certain phenomena, social phenomena in particular. Um, but also a critique of the perspective of the units of analysis that the American uh, approach to international relations really takes. So moving over to Europe, where critical theories are really popular, was uh, an entirely different vantage point for me. And honestly, I struggled with it a lot because I had grown up and been trained in the American system for so long that pivoting to this critical lens and seeing things through like a a prism of alternative perspectives really challenged me. And Mm. it it was good. It was, it was bad um, for how long it took me to figure it out. (laughs) And sometimes how poorly I performed on assignments that called upon me to do that. Right. But it was good in the end because I now have such a, a fuller appreciation for some of those other vantage points. And I'm able to bring that back and teach my students those things as well to enlarge their perspective. Sweet. So, yeah, so that program um, was, is very much taught from a, a critical perspective. And so it, it covers um, international security, regional security, which in many ways is more meaningful, I think, than uh, as an approach and as a policy application than international security at large, especially as um, US hegemony sort of wanes and we're starting to see regional um, constellations of security. Uh, And it also covered terrorism, aftermaths of war. I'm trying to think what else. It was was a good program. Um, And I was able to learn a lot about different approaches to security architectures logics, um, counterterrorism programs, the European model is so different than the United States one. So, and then I came back to the United States and I worked for a while in the real world um, to, you know, make money and be responsible. (laughs) 
And then I did my second master's degree. It was the, the MA PhD track at Texas Tech University. So um, in, in this context, the, in the MA program, I worked full time at the same time for the first three years, the coursework years. And so I really just survived during that time. And I resigned from my position this exact same weekend I completed my comprehensive exams and entered the dissertation phase like I was entering this great void. I, you know, I didn't have this hectic daily schedule. I no longer had classes. And that's when, um, after kind of teetering to find my equilibrium in, in the, that what felt like suspense, you know, that's when I really started to find my path and my place and my voice in the, the expertise that I have now. Um, so I look at the, the politics, the strategies and the technologies of international conflict and security. And one of the things that's really, I guess, in demand right now are emerging technologies and ways that actors are innovating to use them to greatest effect. So um, I am one of the experts on how violent non-state actors leverage drone, commercial drone technologies in order to field a sort of crude yet reliable air power, which is a, a domain. The air domain is something that they have not had reliable, flexible access to ever. And so opening up this entire new domain is bringing in a new dimension to battle spaces where they inhabit, a new vector of you know, attack and defense, and a completely new dynamic and complexity in some of the areas where they're wielding them. So it's really interesting and really new area that my work has been able to contribute um, some empirical grounding to because I'm also a quantitative scientist so I look at systematic patterns and I use quantitative methods to sort of try to see past the static of human unpredictability and to try to see generalizable patterns rather than explaining single cases um, the the sort of qualitative case approach can bring a lot of richness and can show you the complex working of causal mechanisms, but the quantitative approach um, kind of transcends that and gives you uh, systematic analyses. So that's where I sit. And um, to my knowledge, I have data on the, you know, the universe of violent non-state actors that have adopted drones, how they're using them. To my knowledge, I am the only one that has them. So at that scale, and so I've been able to do some really cool analyses and projects and collaborations with them to, to hopefully shed more light on how this trend is unfolding because it's unfolding rather quickly. <laughs> Hold on, Lucas, I, are you muted? Because I can't hear you. you okay. Sorry. <laughs> I was hoping maybe I rendered you speechless, I like to but then your lips just started to give moving. you like full range just because I, it helps it helps with the sound quality sorry about that um i was asking uh can you define non-state actor for everybody yeah so i specifically look at violent non-state actors um, a non-state actor is any actor that's operating outside of regular state apparatuses so government employees whether at the federal state you know, county or local level. 
And so because I do conflict and security, we would be talking about military law enforcement agencies, um, any of the bureaus that, that support those missions. Um, so violent non-state actors are, is any group or individual who uses violence to advance a political agenda outside of those state apparatuses. So it is, um, it's of course weird and those groups will articulate in their propaganda that they do have the right to use violence as a means, but um, normative legal frameworks that exist in this nation state system today say that the state has the monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. And so when non-state actors use it, it is illegal. <laughs> so of course, states can illegally use violence. I'm not yeah. saying that, that there is not such a thing as state terrorism, as you know, state atrocities. I'm just right. stating as a general rule, um, violent and, and their self-defense. I mean, individuals can defend themselves too. Correct. Right. Correct. Yeah. Um, but people with self-defense are not using violence for political re for to advance a political aim or agenda. So they would not fall within that category. Yeah, it would be weird if somebody was breaking in your house and you're like. Um, Trump 2024, you know, as you're defending yourself. Correct. Or, That's why I'm doing this. Nothing yeah. to do with preservation of life. Biden. Okay, go ahead and attack me. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, do, do you want to take a little segue in there? I, I, I uh, um, you live in Texas. Um, and there's these, uh, these recent mass murders that have happened that have gotten people across the country all upset, uh, about security issues and some of the methods seem to violate the second amendment. Uh, what do you think about, do you ever think about a security in those terms? Like in terms of, cause you, you must be thinking about security all the time. So does it ever translate into like, how safe is my campus? How safe is my area, my, my home, my, my neighborhood? What's the best way to secure? Sure. I, I, I'm thinking of security all the time, like yeah. eating dinner, you know, sleeping. I'm, I sleep, dream security. Thanks for that. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you said you sleep. That's good. I thought yeah. that's what you were going to say. You're like, um, yeah, I sleep. That's and then stop. That's it. That's my statement. <laughs> uh, so I rest. But... Yeah. <laughs> no, I do think um, I do consider strategic, operational, and tactical levels of security, both in my work and as an individual. Of course, I think that's pretty uh, rational. <laughs> I think it's pretty yeah. normal. Um, yeah, that's right. You must be a six on the Enneagram. I don't know if you figure. I am a five. You're a five? A strong, strong four-leaning five. We've talked about this. We've absolutely talked about this. You're thinking of security all the time. Oh, yeah. that was. That's a six. I don't know what I'm talking about on the Enneagram. I, I, I really shouldn't get on that because I don't really know what I'm talking about. Well, the six is the need for security. You're right. Okay. But I'm not driven by a need for security. I am driven by a fascination and the propensity to provide security for others. Hmm. But I'm not driven. I'm not phobic or contraphobic myself. 
I'm driven by need to understand. That's the five. And by understanding, I can then implement and execute those plans. Okay. Wow. I didn't know go. that. Maybe I'm a five <laughs> too then. I wouldn't but, doubt it. Yeah. I'm surprised that you don't know. I know. Well. Yeah, you need to brush it's, up on that. It's all weird next, to me. I mean, I, 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 well, I think it's like uh, just the idea of that just the name of it sounds weird too like if you're talking about the enneagram i don't know it just sounds like astrology or something it sounds like um what's your sign you well know? it's adapted from uh, uh some persian ancient persian typology okay. so it probably has derivatives from astrological origins but it's i mean yeah. people can apply it from different perspectives i really like richard Rohr and andreas abert's approach to it so i've seen that name i've seen yeah. those books yep yeah yeah i have i mean we have the books but i just don't read them you know i'm because we have so many other books i right i see them around you should that's that is one i think that you would benefit from yeah well i'll the read it when behind, i get around to it there you go yeah i think the premise behind that one is that christ being fully god and fully man was whole man that he embodied all the personality types perfectly. And by identifying the one that we uniquely host, that seed of logos, we can actually be redeemed through that seed of personality. And that the process of emulating Christ likeness is, is not necessarily emulating specific behaviors, which is an external effort. It is having those internal components redeemed. But you have to know what they are and you have to know what your pitfalls and your compulsions yeah. are in order for that process to be fruitful. So gotcha. I think it's, it's important for people on a sanctifying process, but mm. anyway, it, it was, it, <laughs> is there like a YouTube video of that guy, Richard Rohr? Is he uh, like, I um, imagine so he's, he's a Catholic. I, yes. I, okay. I saw mm -hmm. him on a YouTube yeah. video. I, I, I probably years ago I, I watched, watched him. And I was like, Hmm. I don't think I've ever observed him speak, but I've read a few of his works and he's got and the feeling his... it's it's got the feeling of like central California in the sixties kind of a feel. Oh yeah, very much. Yes. Big Surish, uh yes. Hunter S. Thompson without the guns and the cuss words. Um if you know if you know that whole thing. Well you can you can add in guns and cuss words in your imagination <laughs> if it makes you feel better. <laughs> That's pretty much, yeah. You, <laughs> I'm already there, probably. So probably. Do you do you no, like guns? To, do you like guns? Do I like guns? Did you grow up in, with guns? I did. Yeah, I grew up a big game hunter. I appreciate. Oh. I appreciate having tools and rights. Amen. Yeah. Where do you want to say where you grew up, roughly? Not exact the exact vector. Yeah, but, well, uh, I I was born in New Mexico, but grew up most of my memorable childhood in Arizona. In the okay, so you're west from the west. Yeah, I would that say Western southwest. heritage. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Correct. That whole yeah Louis L'Amour kind of a thing. I think a lot of folks that are from those areas appreciate just being self reliant, being able to have, um, you know, if people are triggered by the word weapon um it's weird that they're not triggered by the word trigger because that's part of a gun but 
<laughs> um, you know, just having that uh, that background, being around firearms right. since you were a kid. Did you, were, did you grow up scared of firearms? Did, did Were you trained by your parents on how to handle them? I was on proper handling, safety, respect of what they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you're yeah, right. That rugged kid, individualism runs through that area from when were I was you? a youth. Yeah. I think my yeah, first uh, hunting trip was when I was eight years old. So Yeah, that's pretty young. Right. That's pretty young. Was that a big game trip? Mm-hmm. You were eight when you were hunting big game? Yeah. First, wow. First uh, elk pretty field dressing, eight years old. <laughs> wow. Did you have a rifle with you? <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, the I rifle would be as large as you. No, 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 you can't, you can't hunt until I think in Arizona, you, until you're 14. Yeah. You can't, you have to go through the hunter safety course and you can't draw out I, until I know you're that's older. that's what the law is. I'm not no, asking No, I, I did not hunt is. until I was 14. I did it legally. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like asking about your drive and you're like telling me about the speed limit. That's not what I'm asking. Right. <laughs> No, I, I don't think I don't that my tender heart for animals could have yeah. handled it any younger because yeah. I have I have hunted and I think it's valuable for food, but I don't trophy hunt and I look right. sternly at people who do. Good for you, but it breaks my heart. <laughs> I just don't think my eight-year-old heart could have done it. So I wouldn't but, have broken yeah. the law for that reason. The, the trophy hunting that I do is like... <laughs> It would look very weird. It would like, I, I, first of all, I don't trophy hunt, but, but if I was, it would just be a bunch of rat skulls, rat faces from the backyard, you know, Oh, that's, that's, that would be my trophy hunting room. No black widows. And then, yeah, the people would be like, uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really proud of that one. I remember that bastard. Have you ever told the stories of your spider hunting methods on here? I feel like your audience might want to hear that if you haven't yet. No, I have not. But it's very it's very effective if you're interested. Uh, and it might sound a little weird if you're not from Southern California. But Southern California has all of these black widows. And I remember when I first found out about it, I I was horrified. Because I grew up in Colorado and I, I mean, there were black widows, but you very rarely saw a black widow. My hmm. uncle, my uncle Dwayne, who has a, an auto shop, you know, the mechanics, my, I come from a blue collar family. Uh, he would catch them and have them in a jar, you know, and I would see them at the shop or whatever. But, mm-hmm. but um, I remember, um, gosh, when, when did I first notice it? <clears throat> I think I had a flashlight that's it. Here's I had a flashlight, coming out. <laughs> but I'm trying to remember why I had a flashlight in the first place going outside. Anyway, for some reason, Perhaps I had this flashlight. Perhaps because it was dark? <laughs> well, then I, I, I shined it on, and there was this, I would had just been sitting there on the concrete earlier, and there was this dark object it it was like a clearly a shadow yeah and i was like what is that and then i i looked closely and it was a black widow just hanging there 
And so then I started looking all around and I saw all sorts of hanging objects just, and that that's how you find them. You go out at night and you get the mm -hmm. flashlight and you look for the, the hanging object, or you look for a leaf that's just hanging there. That's a black widow web. And they like, um, predictably in, in Southern California, it's odd. They don't like inside. They don't, they never come inside, mm -hmm. not even in the garage. They don't come in the garage. They, uh, they prefer outdoors. They, they love stairwells, um, any, any corner, uh, underneath furniture, lawn furniture, stuff like that, like mm -hmm. chairs and, and stuff like that. So yeah, I've, I've killed so let me, 30, let me explain 20 or 30 in one night. Yeah. So what he does is he finds them, he spotlights them with yeah. a flashlight and then he has an aerosol spray can of what? Well, I don't want to say any kind of a brand because Raid isn't paying us for ten percent. Okay, so but it's it's but some kind it of is poison. Raid. It's it bug. Is okay, we get ten. Yeah, so he Raid. finds them and he gets like as close as you know possible, Quick. as is comfortable. And a very and short spray. It sprays them. Take so long. if you hear, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. and I I remember Black I Widow I Hunter. Like I think I counted like thirty. 30 in one night. And usually Ugh. if you do that, you clean them out. Yeah. It's like these, it's like terrorists, you know, I mean, yeah. then they'll come back eventually, yeah. but it's like months later or something like that. We're going so, down rabbit hole after rabbit hole here. It's not, it has nothing to do with race or gender. No. A black widow. I'm going to tell you that. another spider story right quick, just because you told a horrifying spider story. When I first moved to Lubbock, I got a house here and the garage, when I moved out from that house, I was getting things out of the garage. I had, you know, sundry items and I was moving some box and I saw a spider and it was a brown recluse. Oh. And the more boxes I moved out of that garage, the more and more and more that garage was rife with brown recluse spiders. Oh, and I ended up bombing it, you know, <laughs> what are they like the, the fog oh, bombs? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Like four times because I was just so I have been you're four, we had you, all been living there. Yeah. And you're you're for sure it was a brown recluse. I am a hundred percent positive. Of what did they you were. know immediately or did you have to look it up? Um, no, it, my husband is like a spider expert, loves <laughs> spiders, loves them. Oh no. and he identified it immediately. Okay. Yeah. I almost I almost thought you said he identified immediately as a spider. <laughs> nope. Uh, uh, okay. Good. We're we're very okay. happy to hear this. Done with spiders. No and one was bitten. That has nothing to do with race, right? If they were white recluses, they would still be dead, right? They would still be deadly. They okay. would still cause flesh necrosis. Okay. So no one got bit. Mm. -mm. Okay. How big were they? Like on your hand? They buried. Mm, like mm. that's weird. I don't. I wonder what people think I'm doing. I don't know. Is that a hand signal? <laughs> I don't know. They're always changing the rules. <laughs> Can't right? keep up with them. It probably yeah. means that you identify as a spider or something. So drones freak me out, 
and they freaked me out for a while because I've always looked at them like, oh my gosh, I can see it coming. I can totally see what's on the horizon for these things. Because I, I like know. Like a dystopian like future? Is that yeah, what yeah. There, it's, it's, creepy. It. it's creepy about what the government would do to the, with them. And I'm talking about the small commercial groups. I'm not talking about the big ones. Mm. I'm talking about the commercial stuff. And I remember listening to Lawfare podcast. Oh, gosh, it was probably 2012. They were talking about drones back then and commercial use of drones for nefarious purposes. Where do you get your data for this? How do you find Ooh. the data? It's all yeah, open source, all right? So. Right, all open source. Um, there it was this phenomenal article, though, about the, it had this comment about open source data. And it suggested that even uh, there is, of course, classified data out there. And I'm right. sure if I could ever access it, you know, I, I would, could. And you're talking about commercial, it is. you're talking about commercially available drones, right? Um, I, I'm talking about, well, let me first say this and then I'll, I'll broaden. I'm going to give you a typology of okay. drones and a brief history sort of to understand their, the evolution of, of the industry. But, um, but about open source intelligence and data, because that's what I have access to, and so that's what I use. Um, someone once said that the, the people who solve the world's problems are not the James Bonds of data, they're the Sherlock Holmes. They're the ones who do that work to gather the, the vast breadth and depth of open source data, and it's largely that that determines a lot of policy anyway. And so yeah. I know there's a lot of criticism like, well, you don't know what's happening in classified world. Well, you're right. But I also have a pretty good conceptualization of, you know, of what's going on and also the information that the public has that constrains practitioners' ability to execute things. So, right. um, so yeah, open source data has, uh, has kind of its pejorative sense, but I think it's really valuable nonetheless. So um, drones in general, you're saying you mentioned 2012 as you know when you first uh, it was a radar. lawfare pat podcast yeah i believe it was yeah. in the spring of 2012 they were talking about drones back then right commercially so, available drones small small ones correct but actually they've been available for far longer than that um 2012 2013 is considered the time when the the civilian or the commercial industry really started to normalize and democratize them into society where they were able to have some technological breakthroughs on um, integrating and harmonizing the components that constitute a drone platform and making them user-friendly enough for broad target audiences. But actually the very first um, attempts, not intents, there have been plans and intents of terrorists using drones that predate this, but the first attempts with drones was in 1995 with a little agricultural quadcopter. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with Am Shinrikyo, the Japanese doomsday cult. One of no, the most fascinating terrorist groups ever. They were highly innovative. Um, they had their own scientific divisions, their own engineering divisions. They had a sheep farm somewhere in, I think, Australia, where they were trying to harvest uh, nuclear products. To, to do a nuclear attack. So they were thinking really big. They were thinking like weapons of mass destruction. And, um, but you probably do know them because they're the group that dispersed sarin gas on the Tokyo subway. Okay. What you may not know is that they attempted to do it with a drone first. 
But back in 1995, the platforms weren't reliable enough, and in all of their training exercises for it, they found that it just wasn't um, it just wasn't reliable enough for them to execute the plan. So they switched to dispersal through the the airway systems. But that's um, it's been drone technology, commercial technology has been around since then. Um, and then our other early drone users, they either were really innovative groups like OM or they had state sponsorship and were given access to military-grade drones, <laughs> Iran, mostly, <laughs> or they were networked with one of those. So Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda were the first uh, really big players in the, the terrorist drone world back in 2001, um, and the trickling pace of development through 2005, um, Hezbollah was one of the main entrepreneurs of terrorist drone use. But we also had, back in the early era of adoption, we had Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, um, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Taliban, the Haqqani Network, uh, the Tariqi Taliban, Pakistan, Lashkar-e Taiba. We had a lot of groups in the early 2000s using drones. They just weren't using them as prolifically and as successfully because the technology was still developing. So come 2000, really 2013, is when this technology cascaded into society more broadly. And the, the technical capacity, the organizational or infrastructural capacity and the financial capacity necessary to field uh, you know, a new innovation, those were no longer required. Really anyone could buy a, a user-friendly, reliable drone as of 2013 and use it for uh, propaganda generation, for intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, for target acquisition, for command and control in real time from this novel vantage point, um, for weaponization with kind of makeshift munitions if they could access them. And so since then, we've seen a, a sort of an exponential bloom in groups using that because of that commercial industry. We do still have a lot of groups who benefit from state sponsorship and have more robust programs and have access to military-grade platforms. So um, Hezbollah, Hamas, and so, you know, the, those um, Palestinian groups, the Houthi rebels in Yemen actually manufacture Iranian drone you know, technology now because they've received the blueprints to do so and they receive component parts to do so. Um, in, of course, in Russia, the Russo-Ukrainian war, we see that. In the Libya civil war, both sides had really heavy state drones that they were flying and were using them with very little regard for civilian discrimination. Hmm. So um, I think by the end of 2019, the LNA, the side led by Khalifa Haftar, had killed like 800, upwards of 800 civilians with drone strikes because they just were, you're just dropping munitions wherever they thought there might be a target. So hmm. it's, you're right in recognizing 2012 as the breakpoint of commercial technologies enabling groups of a lower capacity to harness this technology to advance their agendas. But it long predated that in terms of, of interests and attempts and small successes. Yeah. So was it fair to say that your work is uh, pretty much focused on terrorist groups um, or Islamic terrorist groups? No, no, okay. not at all. all right. um, Terrorist groups are one 
type of violent non-state actors. They're the ones who use the strategy of terrorism in advancing their agenda. But no, I look at insurgents, rebels, um, transnational criminals, cartels, smugglers. So there's there's a whole ecology of violent non-state actors. The cartels are getting they they've been using drones. Uh, the FARC was using drones for a long time. Um, as, I think as early as 2002, they they discovered a cache, and they actually innovated with submarine drones more than many groups. And um, despite the focus on aerial drones with cartels, they, they do use them a lot, including on the southern U.S. border. Um, last year, Judicial Watch reported that there were 9,000 drones detected along the southern border used for intelligence and, and reconnaissance of border officials. Only 12 were captured, so not a great rate there. But, but wow. actually, the, the smuggling largely happens through submarine drones. So there's submarine, maritime, ground, and aerial drones. And I do look mostly at aerial drones, but there's, there's a whole strain of full-spectrum warfare that you can yeah. consider there. But no, I, I look at, at a much broader spectrum. And in addition, I have a, a working paper um, that has a revise and resubmit right now that looks at the determinants of drone use because early conventional wisdom suggested it was mostly a Middle East jihadist phenomenon, and it's not. It's far okay. broader than that geographically and ideologically. So mm -hmm. jihadism is not a, a significant predictor of the groups using this. They just happen to be something that we focus on, you know, when there's a sensational attack. Yeah. So it, that, it's, yeah. a, it's an artifact of the way they're reported, not gotcha. a reality of the data. Okay. All right. I'm going to share with my screen for your recent, um, to, to capture your recent article. Um, you you recently were published in War on the Rocks mm -hmm. uh, last week, I guess. Actually, it's this week. Shoot, just came out. Yeah. Um, it it's called Weak States and Loose Arms Lessons. My Zoom things lessons and, and warnings warning. from <laughs> Afghanistan to Ukraine. <laughs> right. Um, Tell us about this article and your co-author is, how do you say his last, how do you say his name? Ori it, Swed. Ori Swed. Is that a yeah. man, <laughs> I'm assuming? Yeah, he's uh, Israeli. Okay. Oh, yeah. I remember looking at his bio. He was in the uh, uh, Israeli Special Forces. So, mm -hmm. Awesome. Yep. Okay, uh, so, so this, tell us this about this article. Yeah. Sure. Um, it actually... Tell us about what, what's War on the Rocks for people. War on the Rocks is a it's a, a policy venue. It's a venue that connects academically informed and empirically informed um, research and commentary with a, a very large readership, many of whom are uh, practitioners, policy, you know, military. And so it's it's kind of like um, I don't know if you've heard of like the conversation wired um, like the U.S. Army's war room. It's a, a blog style mm -hmm. type of, of publication that bridges academia and policymakers really on on issues related to war and security, of course. So it's what's a this, what's I, this image I love right this here? venue. Yeah, I yeah. have no idea that I didn't pick it. I'm not the editor. <laughs> oh, they added it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I'm always, it's always something when you publish in a venue like this, I'm excited to see like, what image will they pick um, they when I publish something that... that was related to arms? I would, that's they could have put Santa Claus <laughs> there or something. That's you know. true. Um, when I published with uh, one of the Air Force's venues, the Air and Space Power Journal, the image they picked, you know, it, it posts and you're like, oh, hmm, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, that's an editorial choice. But right. um, so, so this project, it actually, this write-up stems from a, a much larger research uh, study that, that I did over, I think, like a year and a half, um, tracing illicit small arms and light weapons trafficking routes out of collapsed Libya. And so um, if you go to, well, you don't have to. There's, there is an image in here if you scroll down to the, the GIS map. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Okay, so this is actually lifted out of that paper, and we in in that that study, we talk about the theoretical logic of what happens after a state collapses, and how um, there's a whole sub literature called um, conflict contagion or diffusion. Mm -hmm. Empirically, we find that conflict tends to be contagious to a surrounding area, and so understanding why and how those kind of vectors of transmission is uh, a cottage industry in, in the, the literature on conflict. And so we wrote this paper looking at how illicit trafficking, uh, small arms light weapons trafficking is one of those key vectors of transmission. Yeah. And so um, we have that full project where we looked at, this is a, a geocoded um, Uppsala conflict data program has a data set of substate violence incidents and this one is scaled by lethality and so we have a before libya collapse map that shows the surrounding areas violence and then we have an after collapse and then we add the illicit trafficking routes and show they are clustering at the terminuses before it's like a real you know there's some areas and but it's kind of disparate and it's certainly less dense and then after they contract and they, they concentrate and then become more dense. And we show that really this is a, a supply side issue of all of a sudden these groups that have a violent agenda are being supplied with the tools to wage it as you know, the, the Libyans, the desperate non-state actors are dealing with anarchy in their newly collapsed pillaging insecure stockpiles in order to provide provincial security but they also have a surplus and they need money. And so yeah. um, the entrepreneurs sell it abroad to groups that want it. And so if you look here and, and for anyone who chooses to read it, um, shortly after Libya's collapse, huge contingents of Tuareg um, fighters all went to the, that uh, Azawad region of Mali and made enormous inroads in their insurgency there, captured um, huge amounts of land, of discrete chunks of territory and major cities. Um, for people familiar with the, the Sahara Sahel here, you have in Nigeria, you have Boko Haram in some of that area, which has kind of evolved into, there was, I don't know if you're familiar, they had an alliance shift with Islamic State and kind of broke Lo into two pieces. Lots of red down here in Nigeria. Yeah, well, Nigeria is also beset with so much violence because it's oil rich and you have so many different uh, bandits down there and, and it's been embroiled in civil war forever, but, but you do have groups like Boko Haram and um, like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb and, and stuff that operate there. 
And then um, you have your, your separatist region in South Sudan. You have Darfur in there. You have yep. um, an active conflict in Central, um, in, in that Central Africa area. And then really the big one, the big story there is Syria. Right. So that's the um, biggest and darkest red that you have the red well, of course. for those listening on apple podcasts you might want to go check out the uh the article war on the rocks from july 12th carrie chavez and or or ori swed ori swed uh both at texas texas tech university um and it's got a very good graphic or you can just watch the youtube video and you'll see it so yeah, the 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 region just above Israel is dark red, and it's a lot, <laughs> and right. that means that there's a lot of fatalities uh, coming out. Well, of... Syria has been embroiled in a civil war, a right. very bloody civil war since 2014, and of course, it's not the sole source, but, um, and, and it's hard to trace what we call provenance of these illicit weapons, but. Yeah. We have a lot. I was going to ask you, how evidence. do you trace? How do you trace it? Well, it's very difficult. That's why in this project we show the inputs and the outputs. We show um, the the collapse and you know pre pre collapse information and then the post collapse. So it's really hard to show the what's operating in between, and that's where our theory is trying to explain. But um, it's very hard to trace provenance because it's illicit. They're trying to censor their activities. And so, mm -hmm. you know, but there's yeah. a special panel of experts with the UN who has been trying to trace this since Libya's collapse. And they publish a yearly report. And just to give you context, like one year, the, for what they were able to collect in Syria, they were able to trace the, the provenance of a number of weapon systems and ammunition back to Libya. And it, it was like 60 pages worth of wow. line items. And, and that's not just like 60, you know, individual. It was like this type of weapon, the quantity that they located was a single line. So it, there was a lot that made it to Syria. Again, not the sole source, of course, um, for, for the actors, the combatants there, but a considerable one. And we don't have the counterfactual of how Syria would have gone if Libya hadn't collapsed and their arsenals were shipped over, but we can see that it has been contributing as a factor in some way. Mm. So then of course the article pivots to Afghanistan mm -hmm. because very recently that state more or less collapsed and the Taliban gained access to considerable stockpiles of United States small arms and light weapons. Mm -hmm. And that we actually can catalog because we have government accountability reports. We know how much was left behind, um, you know, for what's open source. And then finally, it's, it speculates about what could happen as weapons are poured into Ukraine and not knowing how that hot war will end, whether you know, Ukraine wins, yeah. negotiates a settlement, loses and collapses, that's going to have significant implications for what happens to those arsenals that, I mean, Ukraine is stuffed to the gills with these types of weapons that are easily trafficable and in high demand with a lot of groups. Yeah. Wow. It, it's amazing. To me, just looking at this, it looks like a lot of work to get the data be, it is just i mean it just looks overwhelming <laughs> thank you for noticing 
<laughs> I mean, it just looks overwhelming. Well, I mean, I have, I don't, I don't have a lot of experience in this, but I have, uh, when I was 17, I joined the Navy and, uh, you know, 18, I, I met my first Navy SEAL at 18 years old and, um, started training with them and not, not, uh, voluntarily <laughs> they, they, uh, they made me and, um, uh, it was, turned out it was a good experience. I was, um, running and, and working out with the seals, um, and doing some small arms training on Fort Ord and in my language school training, there were a lot of special forces there. And it was, it was not your average everyday 18 year old experience, I suppose, but I had a, a top secret clearance when I was 19 and, um, I just remember there was always so much information mm -hmm. and I didn't read most of it. I just wasn't interested and it's mm -hmm. not written in the, the kind of prose that is interesting uh, to me. Anyway, the acronyms yeah. and all sorts of stuff that you, you can, I, I would read what I had to read for my job, but, but I wasn't that interested in it just because it was so some people did. They would stay at the skiff, which is a sensitive compartment at, uh, information facility. They would stay late and read. They would get there early. And I was, um, I was a minimal Manny. I, I just, you know, I did what I had to do and I got out. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the, the stuff, a lot of people don't know, but the, in the skiff, there's all sorts of open source stuff too. Mm -hmm open source is is actually quite valuable Mo i think most of what we know about everything is open source and uh certainly the folks that were targeting us knew that and they were developing or open source material on us all the time right. and we had to be aware of that um i mean i i remember the first time i had my photograph taken with a telephoto lens and I noticed it and I happened to be, uh, I think I was walking down the steps with my chief and he told me what was happening. Um, and I later, we, we knew we got briefed on it. They were probably North Korean people because espionage is legal in Japan. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And I, this was my first trip to Japan, and I was being photographed. Well, and, a lot has changed since then, too, yeah. though. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm going to the, the issue of information. It's overwhelming to me. Mm -hmm. Like, I, the data. It's overwhelming. Yeah. The amount of data that's available. Um, I, I know that I felt overwhelmed back then, and that was right. the 90s. And right. I can't imagine. So you're saying a lot has changed, but uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is there's so much more data available right. and there's ways to get it that are available. So how do you manage that? <laughs> how do you, do you, um, I, I'm glad we started with your Tory experience at Biola because that was an overwhelming amount of material that you had to ingest. Maybe that helped you. I don't know. But are you just a curious kitten? How do you, how do you handle that amount of data? Right. Well, 
as a quantist, my perspective is the, the more data, the bigger the data, the better, because it, it makes it more reliable. Um, yes. there's, there's, it's less error prone. But first of all, as you go through this level of education, you learn the best existing data sources, right? You learn um, the ones that apply to your research, the ones that are curated by special institutions and programs that um, are, are tailored toward providing valid and reliable data on the topic. So I don't collect all my own data. Um, in fact, mounting a data collection project is a Herculean thing that most scholars approach only with funding or with a, a, a massive amount of ambition, right? So there's a lot of existing data on conflict, on terrorism, um, the Global Terrorism Database, the Iterate Database. Uh, the Global Terrorism Database is operated out of, I'm going to forget now. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm working you need on a, a subscription, or is it open? No, is it? It's open source. Um, but the one of the the founders or the main curators. I'm working on a a risk assessment model for drone attacks in the United States, and so it's that one is through actually the first stage of data collection is machine learning, right? They just have a an AI collect sources, eliminate oh, wow. irrelevant ones, and then they have human coders go in and continue the process to refine um, according to their data collection protocols. And, um, but there's also um, correlates of war, international crisis behavior, militarized compelled threats, um, major episodes of political violence. There's all these existing data sets out there that as you do research gotcha. at that level in this field, you learn them and they're frequently updated when possible. Okay. Um, and, and they're endowed, right? They have people who do all of that hard work, and that helps you to not have to spend inordinate amounts of time trying to sift through that information. Now, so you're it, not just grabbing a copy of the New York Times and you know Dallas Morning News, and you're clipping. I, you're not clipping them with. I'm clipping scissors. them physically. Yeah, if I and turn putting them on your refrigerator. There's a wall with red. Yeah, you, know, you got it on your refrigerator, yeah. and you're yeah. like, okay, make sure. Right. You circle I it, hold like it all in my head, Lucas. Movies. That's how I do my yeah. research. Yeah. I love the old movies where everything was <laughs> newspaper clippings. That's how they did their research was, yeah. you know, there's yeah. the guy had that. Look at this. He's got his picture in the paper. Here it is. I figured it out. Him. Right. That's very unrealistic in, yeah. in the scientific method. But you can collect your own data. I've done um, a couple of data sets at this point. It is, it is an enormous investment and commitment. Um, and so it's not super common to do, but like I said, I have data on um, drones, on drone users um, in the, the violent non-state actor world. That took me um, a summer with multiple RAs working in coding for me that I led and audited. I mean, it's the whole endeavor, but you have to learn how to be systematic, disciplined, and you have to learn how to extract measurable data points because not right. not a lot of what we want to know is observable and what's not observable is not renderable to the scientific method scientific method is empirical not all phenomena is empirical so right we have to to do the best with what we have um i actually have this is an interesting one um with a different co-author who um let's see what is he doing 
he was just at a Harvard fellowship and then he went to a NATO fellowship and I think now he's going to a council on foreign relations one. He's kind of a, a fellowship whore these days. But eventually <laughs> he's going to move into a position. Um, but we have a, a project. This is going to be so taboo for so many academic audiences. I don't know how many academics listen to your podcast, but academic um, people, they need to just loosen up and not, well, just knock it off. We'll That's see what, what you say. think. You'll okay. see what we'll see. So um, we wanted to, we have several questions about how states fight. Okay. Like the actual prosecution of conflict. There's so much research on the causes and the outcomes, but like how states are fighting in those interstices is, is much less known. Hmm. And for what we do know, it's, a lot of it is siloed into individual things. So like there's the work on air power that just looks at air power. And then there's the work on, well, nobody looks at sea power. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you know, you have your specific approaches and that does not allow you a substitutable lens or it doesn't allow you to look at, at how force uh, packages are or, or force structures are packaged together. And so, and that largely it's because these data don't exist. So what we did is we um, scraped information from the understructure of Wikipedia on the full universe of U.S. military interventions from 1989, the advent of the cruise missile, up to the beginning of 2020 when we finished the data collection. Wow. And it tells us, like, nobody has the full universe of U.S. military interventions because it's so time-consuming to collect. <laughs> but we used Sparkle, which is a, a resource description framework query language, and we had it scrape it for us, and then we, you know, cleaned and validated and coded it. But we have these data that have, it's far more granular. We have geocodings, we have the means of force used for each intervention, and this is so important for the way it's modeled statistically, we have it nested in its interdependencies. So like, like existing data sets have one line for the Afghanistan war, or maybe two. I think, um, I think Rand Corporation has like eight lines, but they're independent lines of, um, that, you know, that don't show that they're connected to each other, like sub campaigns in the larger Afghanistan war. That's bananas. That's not how it really works. There are campaigns that have operations within them that have interventions within them, right? And so we actually were able to identify the, the nested structure and arrange the data in that format. And so we're doing, um, we have a hopefully forthcoming paper that introduces the data set. And then we have a number of projects lined up to start describing the, the predictors of different types of force, how high technology, you know, they, they use the different predictors for when they use drones, cruise missiles versus ground troops. So that's another example of a, a laborious, although less laborious because of that, the coding data collection project. And that took us like three years. Wow. Just, just for perspective. So. Wow. So how yeah, many hours, it, how many hours a week though? Like one hour a week? Oh no, no. He had a small army of research assistants out of UCSD working for us. Okay. So it was, it was many hundreds of man hours that went into that. Mm. Yeah. Data collection is no joke. Yeah. How did you get, how did you know that you were a quant? 
Like when you're going through, did you take uh, statistics as an undergrad? Nope. During Tory? Statistics class was in my PhD That would have been program. weird for you to be a, a Tory person and in statistics class. I feel like, you know, you're, you're yeah. reading Dante and you're like, you know what? Damn no, it, I want some more math here. Don't create that false dichotomy. You can have like a vibrant appreciation of art and still be a mathematician. That's true. Yeah, I, I, I would classify myself as such a one. I chose political science because it unifies those two sides of me, hmm. because quantitative political science specifically, because. Yeah. Well, how early was that connection with that, with that material? Was that in your undergrad that you had that connection or as a quant? Um, no, it wasn't until I got to this program. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't in, until uh, I learned the, the skill. It wasn't in, in street Andrews that doesn't do quantitative methods. No. <laughs> No, until I started learning the skill and how to to use it as a tool to answer questions, I I didn't, I mean, I I couldn't have known. I didn't know what I didn't know. But as I learned the methods and as I I learned how to apply them to answer Mm -hmm. the types of questions I had, you know, I'm now, I I appreciate other methods and I triangulate with other methods, but I am pretty staunchly a quant. It kind, it, I guess it kind of depends on the questions you're bringing and the, the question absolutely does. Absolutely yeah. does. See, maybe you're good at generating kind of quant friendly questions and, or I don't know if I, that's the right way to put it, but like, it just feels like um, there's an art to it. Like there's mm-hmm. an art to um, knowing how to not totally waste your time. Because that's my fear with the quant thing. That's why I knew I was not a quant. Because I was, I, I was like, I don't know if I'm not going to waste my time for 20 years, basically. Because, right. but some people just seem to have a fit. Like, okay, I can get those data. These data are already here, um, and so let me formulate the question where this is relevant. Right. Did, did you find yourself just naturally asking quantifiable? answer no. questions or? no that's a skill it's a skill you learn and something you're trained to do i mean it's okay. so you had yeah. good mentoring yeah um my dissertation advisor and you know mentor through this whole process is is a methodologist like a very talented brilliant methodologist yeah. an advanced one so mm-hmm. i was i was able to learn how to derive those types of questions but i actually teach um methods i teach research design and um you know statistical analysis to undergraduates and so i too teach them how to recalibrate their thinking about those more generalizable and systematic questions how to find parsimony in their questions rather than honing in on one case and so i teach them strategies to arrive at that and i teach them the value of that Mm -hmm. but but really it is the inductive process Right. To arrive at the right question that can be answered with deductive methods, that's an art. This is a science. So it really is that blending. And I think, too, the study of politics or any social science, but, but especially, I don't know, I'm saying that as a political scientist, so I guess that's biased. I think especially political science, which is the study of how humans wield power over each other, it's very messy. Um, I think it's particularly prone to like human idiosyncrasy and unpredictability and contingency. And so seeing through those factors to find those systematic patterns behind the static is also an art. 
right? Yeah. You have to theorize about what's happening behind that mm -hmm. in order to collect observable measures of it to see if that's what's happening through scientific methods. Right. Yeah. So I really see what I do as this blending of art and science. Mm -hmm. And that's why I chose it because I have such strong loadings of both. And so finding something that engages me as a whole person, this is yeah. my field, you know, ah, and I love okay. it. How And so did you choose your PhD program because you already knew that or did you find that out while you were in the PhD program? I chose this field when I was 12 years old. I knew I wanted to study oh. this a long time ago. The specific vantage point I, I learned along the way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is an art and a science. Um, the how much of your work is geared toward okay i want i want to publish and i have a, a venue i want to publish in and i know this is a good fit for that and i'm going to go for that how much of that is kind of driving things do you have a deep desire to publish because some yeah. academics that's all sure. they think about all the time sure yeah it's, well, I'm, especially at the stage i'm currently in um publishing is uh, the highest value currency I have. Yeah. And um, I came to Texas Tech because I lived in Lubbock. I didn't come to Lubbock to go to Texas Tech. And Texas Tech has a fine enough pedigree, but it's, it's not, um, it's not in the type of tier where I want to go. And so I have to transcend pedigree to go where I want to go, which the only way to do that is through publications yeah. or enormous grants, but I, publications are more within my control. So so right. it is important to me, especially at this juncture, but um, I don't write, I, I don't usually write papers or do a research project for a specific venue. I do work that interests me and that I think is valuable and advances cumulative scientific knowledge. And then I find journals that are reputable that fit that agenda well, right? Yeah, that sounds like you're going to be happy if you do yeah. it that way. Yeah. Do you like teaching? Do you like the undergrads? I do. And I did not expect that because I don't like people. And I think young people especially are really annoying. Mm -hmm. But I, um, to my surprise, this is going to be my fourth year teaching. And I love it. I what do you like about it? I have a fantastic relationship with my students. Um, I, I am able to to convey and share my high enthusiasm for the substance and the methods hmm. that lights a fire in other people. Oh, that's cool. um, and I'm able to observe so much sublimation from start to finish with them because I do, you know, interface with them really closely. I am probably one of the, the few Christians in higher education, one of the few conservatives in higher education. So I am Christian? able to. One sec. I gotta correct <laughs> my notes. I thought I just was assuming. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't. I'm embarrassed. I, I so had you down you. as a Unitarian. Oh. I don't know why. Yeah. Okay. You know what? I as had Muslim first. And I, I, you had Muslim first. I crossed that out, and then I put Unitarian. Because right. I just was assuming, yeah. you know, you were kind of progressive. Uh, all right, hold on. So Christian, C-R-I. All right, I'll look it up later. You should. Yeah, you should look into that. I've heard of it. Yeah. So. 
So you're but Christian, you're to conservative. Use, yeah. uh, do people know that? Are you kind of... Um, I don't, I, I do not preach or um, I, I am actually nonpartisan. I know that that's taboo to say on the Republican professor. And I understand that you are Republican do you have, partisan. Do you have nonpartisan tattoos on your arm or something? Like, how do you alert people to this? I, well, when it's relevant, I say it with my words out of my mouth. Okay. But I, I'm nonpartisan. I'm, of course, ideological. In order to be an ideologue, you have to have a lot of political information, right? But being a political scientist, that's kind of second nature. So um, I'm able to stand from a pretty neutral, um, intellectually honest and curious position. And it's absolutely a blast to engage with students from that place because they are so formative and yeah. impressionable at this age. And especially the ones emerging right now that a lot of them, um, you know, they, they're individuating and they're trying to engage with the real world for the first time. And a lot of them don't have the coping skills or the tools to do that. And they, they really flounder and they don't have the mentors to help them. Yes. And that's so key. it's, that's key. It, it's so it is. And it's such a so privilege you found to, be able as a mentor. to be part of that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I don't, I don't talk about it in the classroom. Um, if well, does it ever come, come up? Do, do, do you ever, do you feel weird being Christian and, and your, your word conservative? Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like you belong on the campus? Yeah. But yeah. that's because I don't derive my sense of belonging from uh, like my community's perspective of me. It's, okay. I do. I feel qualified to be here. I feel yeah. a sense of, of purpose and belonging in all of my activities. And when students ask me about it directly or when there's an opportunity to say, I don't know what you believe, but this is my perspective on it. And you can take that for what it's worth. You know, right. it's, it's a really neat opportunity to be able to mentor students and equip them with resources that they desperately need and are so woefully deprived of in so many ways. How many people are the, in your classes? Well, how big um, are your classes? Usually 40 to 50. Oh, that's a big class. Mm -hmm. Dang. That's that sounds like a lot to me. Do they give you an office there? Yeah, I'm in That's, it right now. Oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh. Praise God. Just yeah. trying to fit in with you. Oh, really? Is that how you would say it? <laughs> praise God. Sure. That's awesome. You have an office. Uh, do you live far from campus? Mm, do you have no. to deal with traffic? No. That's nice. Lubbock is very navigable. It's very smartly designed. The grid city with like. Are your uh, students all Texans or or they come from different places? No, they come from. I mean, many of them are, but mm -hmm. they come from all over the place, national and international. I have a lot of diverse students. How do you feel about phones in the classroom and stuff like that? Do you have an issue with people checking their phones or I do. being on social media? How yep. do you handle that? For my lower level classes, um, which are, are usually more freshmen or for like some students take them as an adjunct to their degrees, they're not really required to be in the political science department. I have a collective action policy. Um, all the students, the class, 
at the beginning of the semester uh, have a, a collective 10 extra points on one of the categories of their grades. And every time I hear or see a phone or social media use in class, the whole class loses a point. So they police each other and I don't have to worry about it because they, if they observe someone on their phone, that's their point that they lose if I see it. And so, um, so I do that for, for my larger and lower level classes. For my higher level classes, I tell them up front that it, it, I interpret it as disrespect and inattention. I find it distracting to other people, which undercuts my effectiveness in the classroom. And so I'm expecting them to show respect and professionalism in my class, and they're just not going to use it. There's no points incentive, but I just, if I see them, I call them out and tell them to put it away, and I'm pretty unabashed about it. Okay. But I find them, I find them distracting to me and others, so I don't allow them. Yeah, I run a pretty tight ship a, in my class. Yeah, I really appreciate how you handle that. Tell us one more time how do, the lower, uh, the lower level. What is it? The point system they have, ten extra points or something? How did you say it? Yeah, so they they have a, they have quizzes, right? They're quiz yeah. grade. Okay. So um, each quiz is worth ten points. So it's basically. How like many total points in the class? Are these percentage points? Okay. I think quizzes are worth 10% of their overall grade in most of those classes. So each but, quiz but is, how, is worth how much of their total grade? Each quiz is worth 2% of their grade. So, so it's like 2% of quizzes. their grade. Yeah. Okay. But I, I dropped the two lowest quiz scores so that if, because they're, they're unannounced. Oh, I, I dropped so the it's two like highest. an absence mechanism. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> But yeah, it's basically the equivalent they, of a perfect uh, quiz. Quizzes? Yeah, I dropped the highest ones. The highest ones. Or you could just um, get the one, you just get the grade that you earned. You know, how about that? There you well, go. anyway, I'm kind of a smart aleck, but I'm not really a smart aleck. I really do believe that. But okay, so so they they have 10% in quizzes. And don't mm -hmm. you get complaints uh, if somebody else has their phone out and they, they lose points? I mean, how do... Well, I state my policy clearly at the beginning and I invite questions on it. They understand that it's a collective action policy. They understand the idea, the logic behind it. I explain that to them. So yeah. the first, usually it's the first student's phone that goes off. Usually it's sound and not sight. And it, yeah. it often takes the one first student because I don't think, you know, unless they've had me before and they know I'm not joking, I, most professors are non-confrontational or kind of pushovers or they let yeah. things slide or whatever. Right. So I think a lot of them are like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm going to do that. But then I hear a phone ding in my class and I stop and I tell them that's one point off the entire class's quiz grade. And wow. they never do it again. <laughs> that's, so that's crazy. It works. It works pretty good. I'd love to see the language in your syllabus on that. I want to, I might want to copy that. Yeah, I'll send it to you. My future. Okay, cool. Well, I, I, I really appreciate you coming on today, uh, Care Bear, which is what I call <laughs> you when you're not around. Uh, sometimes I call it to your face, but I just can't help it. Care Bear, uh, yeah. Carrie, Dr. Carrie Chavez is an honored guest, and I love the skills that you bring to this whole thing. The, I love that you're a quant because I'm not, and we need good quant people out there, and I'm so glad that you're doing the work you're doing. So thanks for coming on and sharing part of it with, with us. Yeah, thanks yeah. for the, the rather intertwining chat. <laughs>
Anytime. With the, Anytime. With the pandans. Yeah. All right.